I'm Megan. I'm Tyler. And this is The Office Hours, the podcast where two literature professors analyze the great American story. Hey, Tyler. Hey, Megan. We're back. How are you feeling in the wonderful world of The Office? Well, I'm really uh, excited that it is another holiday episode. This, I'm really like, I had strong opinions early on about holiday episodes just in general, like as a cultural mm-hmm. form. And uh, this show is really like paying off. Uh, yes. So I, that, yeah, that's kind of making me happy. Um, yeah. What about you? They, I'm happy for you for this. They just keep <laughs> coming at you. I feel like, isn't it sort of rare the shows have a Valentine's Day episode? Is I that think common? So. Yeah, yeah, I think so. We're only two seasons in. We're not even done with the second season, and you have already gotten Christmas, Halloween, and Valentine's Day, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so this this we're in a good place. Yeah, I'm really really excited about it. Also, because I feel like it gives us a chance to talk about like the cultural and social, uh, uh, you know, thing that is Valentine's Day ritual. holiday yes. I don't know um yeah I'm really eager to get your like hot takes your okay. hot Valentine's Day takes I think you'll be surprised really oh I interesting think so. I think so there's there's a lot in store should we start with revisions and regrets yes let's do it I have to say so Tyler I know you're not big on the revision and regret section but I did listen back to our last episode and there were several times when you said oh I'm gonna need to come back to this regret <laughs> <laughs> So is there anything that you would like to come back to? Honestly, like <laughs> I record these things and then they just like go out of my brain, you know? Okay. And uh, that's, so I'm like, oh, that was fun. I have no, un- like I've said this before, but like, unlike every other area of my life, uh, I don't tend to have regrets <laughs> so here. Uh, so nothing's coming to mind. Um, what about you? Anything well, in, in the light of day? A safe space for you that is free of regret. I just have one thing that is an omission to address. I've got to say, I was expecting more regrets, especially because like following Dwight's comment where he said something like all the women in the office are going to get on the same cycle. I had a whole side branch about the myth of menstrual synchronization. I thought I was going to have a lot of regret. Turned out, feel fine about it. Yeah, good, Um, good. But there was one omission Mm. I felt, and this was from our discussion about the terms guys and women, and that was in last week's summary, or last time's summary, where, you know, that, like, the term guy, and we talked about the gender of the term guy and all of that, and wanting it to become fully embraced as a gender-neutral term, and I was just reminded of this example, and this is from my, a friend of my grandfather-in-law, a friend of, or a friend of Dan's grandpa, his name was Cecil. I do not know for sure if Cecil is still with us, but he was an old man in his eighties and he referred to everybody as babe. Like wow. he babe as a gender neutral term. So like he prefer not just to women, but to men, like his male friends as babe, you know, like, Hey babe, can you pass me the salt or whatever? And I love that. That is amazing. Isn't that a great example? I love that. Neutralizing a gendered term. How do you feel about the the word babe in most contexts, other contexts? Hmm. 
you know, and, what, and baby. I'm curious what you think about baby, but I feel like these terms are very context dependent for me. Yeah, yeah. Like I think you could give me them in lots of different contexts, and I, I think I'd have some pretty different <laughs> needs on them. It probably depends a lot who is saying it. The signifier would signify differently. Is that what you're saying? It would signify differently to me, <laughs> but I will just say that when used gender neutrally, I absolutely adore it. Yeah, the reason I ask is because Jen hates, I remember early, like very early on in our dating, I don't recall using babe or baby, but mm -hmm. perhaps we were around somebody who did or something. I don't know if that was something in the 2010s or whatever, but I do remember like hearing other like couples or people say, you know, like call each other babe, babe, hey babe, you know, whatever. But anyway, I just remember Jen really early on being like, don't you ever fucking call me that, you know, like don't use babe and definitely don't use baby, you know. Um, and I remember being like, sure, that's fine. But also slightly disappointed because I don't think anybody's ever called me babe. And I was like, oh, that would be nice. You know, I wouldn't mind that so much. Um, and upon reflection, I think it's maybe because of the uh, the kind of gender play that that Babe would allow potentially. Yeah. Um, so Cecil is a trendsetter. Cecil um, is a trendsetter. What a name, by the way! I love the name Cecil. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty classic. So, yeah, maybe uh, maybe try that out. You can't use Babe on Jen, but maybe you can just use it for people out there in the world in general. Yeah. I feel like it would only really work using it with people who identify as men. <laughs> that that for me feels like. Yeah. Otherwise, it would be, I don't know, creepy. Um, would you use it with students? Would you walk into a classroom and be like, hey, babes? <laughs> <laughs> well, now I'm tempted to try. I want you to. <laughs> the big problem is if you use it on a woman who does not know how flexibly you use the term babe, then, you know, you might be running into a problem. And maybe yeah. it helps if you're over 80. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Gain some freedoms. <laughs> <laughs> um and that's one of them yeah we talk a lot about ageism but we don't talk a lot about like elder privilege <laughs> yeah that's so true, that so true. <laughs> and uh i'm gonna revise and regret that i'm sure <laughs> well at least you'll have something to talk about for that yeah I, I really leave you hanging every time yeah. in revision yeah, that's okay that's okay yeah i'm um, i'm i have i always have plenty to <laughs> to add regret edit and so on. So shall we get into the episode? Let's do it. Okay, so today we have season two, episode 16, Valentine's Day. Would you like to show the summary, Tyler? Sure. Pam holds out hope for Valentine's Day gift from Roy. Jan and Michael head to New York for a corporate meeting. Now I have some, already in there, I have some questions. <laughs> but among them is Jan and Michael head to New York for a corporate meeting. Isn't Jan in New York anyway? She She's not traveling. I actually took issue with that as well. Weird. Well, I wonder yeah. who wrote this. Um, yeah, it's a little off. I feel like they just wanted to make sure mm. that Jan was referenced in there. And they took the shortcut that involved being inaccurate. Yeah, it should say like Michael heads to New York for a corporate meeting with Jan or yeah, with that or that does that imply headed by no for Jan's corporate meeting? 
Yeah, you could do Jan's corporate meeting. How about that? Okay. Well, or I'll send a, a, I'll send a letter to Peacock. And the new CFO. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, I want to talk about him. Uh, I love David Wallace. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But heads up about where do you think he's hot? That's my question. Um, I think he's cute. Yeah, I think. He's I mean, a- I don't, I don't see. It's not like uh, Leonardo DiCaprio on Titanic or anything. Sure. But what could be? What could? He's be? not. He's not your Ben Affleck. Right. Um, oh man. But yeah, I think he's. I, I do think he's cute. And interestingly, I've seen him in other things. I don't know what it is about The Office. I love him in The Office. I've seen him in other things, and I have not liked him in other yeah. things. Yeah. I don't know if it's been the character or if it's that when he takes off his glasses, it's like that Clark Kent Superman thing or something where yeah. something fundamentally changes. <sighs> I don't know. Sorry, my dog is coughing in the background. But um, he's great here. But sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Yeah, sorry, my bad. Start from Valentine's Day. Let's do it. So, so as the yeah. king of holidays, <laughs> what's your take on Valentine's Day? Uh, I hate it. Um, really? Yeah. Do you like it? I actually like it. This is crazy. You are just are you just a contrarian? Is that what this is? <laughs> Let me explain why. So I actually, I don't really care about Valentine's Day as a romantic holiday, Uh but I do think about Valentine's Day as a mom holiday. (laughs) This is because my mom was really, really good at Valentine's. And so I remember being a kid and it was really special because it'd come downstairs in the morning on Valentine's Day. And she'd have like on our plate at breakfast, she'd have, I I remember like a little plastic heart-shaped beach bucket and, you know, just some little kid, like Valentine themed things. And it was really, really exciting and really sweet. And so I have this association between moms and Valentine's day and it being about kind of cute, fun, heart-shaped things. And so I really embrace the commercialization of heart-shaped merchandise i would say do you want a valentine's gift from your betrothed i do not interesting and you do not get one in turn like you don't you don't get him uh no i make i actually make heart-shaped cookies for valentine's day and that's it like i'm not i do not i'm not big on gifts kind of in general but uh yeah no gifts just heart-shaped paraphernalia, and uh, cookies. What kind of cookies are we making? What are they? Sugar cookies, frosted. Yeah. We're good. With sprinkles? Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. cool, cool, cool. Definitely with sprinkles. They're a labor of love. Whenever you do cookies that involve cookie cutters, Mm. it's it's time-consuming. So let me just... uh, let me just play up, <laughs> play up my own commitment there in, in making heart-shaped cookies. Uh, I have a friend who bakes like a crap ton of cookies the minute the semester ends. It's like her Zen kind of, um, you know, uh, cathartic experience. I've always thought that was like a cool thing, um, but also because I sometimes get some of those baked goods and that makes me happy. But yeah. in terms of Valentine's Day, I think, you know, predictably... I have thought of it as a kind of, um, you know, 
heteronormative, uh, like, um, I don't know, like enforcement or something, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. here's all these images of conventional um, heterosexual romance and, uh, you know, that it's designed to just make you feel bad and to like uh, emphasize, yeah, that like, whatever, you know, romantic love is the essence of um, intimacy or something like that. Mm -hmm. And the publicness of it, of course, you know, and like that actually gets brought up in this episode with yes. Oscar gets a Valentine's gift from his partner, but has to say that it's from his mother, right? So yeah. that was the other thing, right? It's like, oh, it's heteronormative in that way, uh, you know. But I will say that like my actual experience of Valentine's Day has often been like friends. Like I can think of two friends in particular who are women who are like really invested in Valentine's Day and they use it or they see it as a day to celebrate their love for friends and like basically for everybody like wow. they're not the valentine's day yeah wow. yeah no. and like i've always re that really changed my point of view because it was like yeah there's nothing certainly there's the like kind of the mainstream i guess narrative of valentine's day is like oh these couples going out whatever flowers and dinner but um but there's nothing really in the heart-shaped card or whatever that dictates that it has to be that way and like I think it's kind yeah. of interesting how people have taken it up as it's not religious and it can be this kind of opportunity like for friendship and other forms of like just love I, I don't know that taught me a lot about like how you know maybe my cynicism <laughs> doesn't actually like recognize that people do interesting things with yeah. Um, or with whatever um so yeah so but uh i don't know it'll be interesting what we think this episode thinks of valentine's day yeah um, yeah where do you want to start do you want to start with the opening well i want to say yeah sure actually because that talks that we've got pam the pam interview right where she's mm -hmm. talking about uh valentine's day so she has the interview and she's comparing it to grade school, right? Yes, yes. And she talks about this card that Jim made her last year with Dwight's head on it. And she says that it was hilarious and it was horrifying or something like that. Horrifying and funny. Yeah. Horrifying and funny. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I, that really set me up to be like, oh crap. Like she wants a gift from Jim. Mm. is she aware of that she wants a gift from jim unclear but like she mm. does not say last year i got x from roy Good point. and at the end of the episode when he has leaves but has not given her anything she looks so crestfallen and so mm. you know i was really interested in in like also she's all like what's with her makeup and hair in this episode it's so odd, right? Because it's different than we've ever seen. So her hair, she's got it kind of brushed back, but in a headband. Mm -hmm. You know, usually she's got it like partly clipped, kind of half clipped back. So we've got the headband. And is she just, is she wearing more, a little more makeup this time? I think so. She's got a pink sweater. And a is her hair always curly or is it? Yeah, it's always curly. She done that with like a, I don't know, curling iron or something. It's always curly. It's oh. always curly. And yeah, it's pretty much curly in that way. And I have sort of the same kind of hair as Pam. So 
I know that fit, like when you put a headband on, it does this thing where it's like a little too, I shouldn't say too, <laughs> but I always feel it on myself that it's kind of too puffy up front. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so it taps into my feelings about my own hair or something when I, when I uh, wash her change of her hair here, but yeah, she's got, she's got a little bit of a different look. What do you think about this look? And what do you think about people dressing for Valentine's day at work? Confused. Because uh, <laughs> I, I was sort of like, wait, who is she dressing up? Who or what is she dressing up for? Cause there's no party in this episode. You know, it's not like the planning committee party planning committee is coming yeah. together and she's but other people dress up too. Like, doesn't so phyllis i think is wearing red or pink yeah yeah theme is angela even gosh i really should have made notes about i thought angela looked like she was wearing a sailor's dress or something yes she was kind of a sailor's vibe (laughs) yeah totally yeah i didn't pay attention i did look at michael's tie and didn't notice anything special about it because in the boardroom scene i was like i really i'm gonna pay attention to everybody's outfits maybe there will be something here and it really didn't seem relevant in any way so yeah I don't know I just thought it was interesting like I I feel I feel like anxious talking about Pam's like physical appearance uh, (laughs) for many reasons um you know uh all of them feminist (laughs) but but uh but it does feel as if the show goes to a certain effort to like make this actress look as kind of un um I don't know, like, uh, what's a word? Unglamorous, maybe? Yeah, unglamorous or kind of, you know, like, everyday, ordinary, whatever, like, um, and, uh, and so, yeah, it's really striking that they, that they have put her in makeup, but it's not as if it, like, is makeup that makes her more, like, I don't know, glamorous or something like that, I don't know. Exactly, like, it shows effort. It shows that she's trying, but it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't feel like a Hollywood stylist came in and glow up or something. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I was also thinking about how pale she is. Yeah. And people in general, and these actors, like they're filming this in Los Angeles, but Valentine's Day's in February, and this is what white people look like in February. (laughs) And it's not, uh, you know, it's not the best look. It's not necessarily the healthiest look. Yeah. They are pale, right? Yeah. Like there's a washed outness to them. And I just started thinking about the fact that they are living in California and not in Scranton in February. And so hmm. I don't know. Are they are they really that far out of the sun? Are Good they question. you know lightening them, kind of washing them out with the makeup? I don't know, but it was interesting to think about. It's very interesting that like you've got, I mean, this is because I remember seeing episodes later in the run and feeling like Jim and Pam look more conventionally like attractive in Hollywood terms. They do. Disappointed. disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. And like, but part of the appeal of the show, I really do think is like seeing people that look like the people that are at your own office. And so- Meredith and Phyllis and Stanley and Oscar, you know, et cetera, are not, um, yeah, they're not like models and they are, they have, uh, you know, normal bodies, you know, they have, 
you know, normal skin, like, and skin that would look how it looks under fluorescent lighting and stuff like that. There's just something really interesting about that. It's also like, you know, it's interesting that the show can only present that to us under the guise of like being a documentary. Like, God forbid we actually had a show that was sort of, (laughs) here's a show and these people just look like this, you know, Um, which is a big pet peeve of mine. Because if you go and watch like television or movies from the 70s and even, even the early 80s, it's like, people looked weird and they looked like they had just had weird, you know, interesting, strange faces, you know, and bodies and like, like they do in the world, you know? And, um, and now everybody looks the fucking same and it's so boring to look at everybody's faces. And so, you know, um, so anyway, yeah, I, I, I like that the show does this. Yeah. Yeah. So we've, I'm, we're really, we really have to relish season two for maintaining that. And that look, that style. I did notice actually last week, I didn't talk about this, but I'd wanted to. Pam was wearing this kind of darker blue shirt, still the button down, still with a cardigan, but this time she had a gray cardigan. But the shirt was a deeper color. Usually she wears the very pale, often pink things in the kind of pastel Mm. category. But this was also the shirt that showed up in Michael's movie interesting and i just wanted to say i thought good she really in that shirt okay yeah 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 I thought that was a good look for pam uh but one, I of my, one of my first notes uh actually was what is this documentary about like i keep i feel like we don't ever talk about this but we should come back to it from time to time to be like yeah. what did like within the premise of the show what are the people filming these workers making a documentary about um and anyway but I think the reason that was on my mind was I felt the cinematography in this episode was like really interesting like the opening in the opening we get um like Pam's at her desk and then the florist delivery comes in and the camera does this like whip pan and then zoom or you know kind of refocuses and it's like a really dynamic shot um, and a dramatic shot. And then, of course, the ending scene with the um, Jan and Michael kiss is shot like from like through layers of glass. Mm-hmm. And there was another one, another scene like that, where it's like it felt conspiratorial almost, even though what was being talked about wasn't. I don't know. I can't remember offhand. Um so anyway, yeah, I was really, I felt like this episode really like reminded me that we're in a kind of mockumentary. Yes. You know what I have not really thought about is whether, is the show that we see supposed to be their documentary? And the, I kind of think of it as no. Yeah. The reason I think of it, like, this is what we're getting. But because as you were saying that, I was starting to to think, oh, I wonder how, if they were to make this into a, an actual documentary, whatever their goal and purpose is, how would they edit it together? Like, how would they yeah, be yeah. Drawn on these scenes and this footage that they're getting? Yeah. And it feels like it would be different than the thing that we're getting, but I don't know why, and I don't know if that is reasonable. To That's assume. so interesting. This came up for me in Michael's, like, he's, he's, you know, we, we've seen him often, like, try to pretend to be an expert on things, but this episode really ramped that up with these, like, giving us facts about New York that are obviously fake, but, like, he is, it's like, why does he need to do this? Well, it's like, he's trying to look smart for a documentary, 
but like in what context? And then the other thought I had was when he gets lost and like ends up near the pier or wherever he is, you know, um, he, uh, we need a New York city expert to like map it out. But um, he, uh, I kept thinking, would the documentarians help him get back to where he needs to go in time for the meeting or not? And this was on my mind. I don't know. Did you watch any of the January 6th, uh, uh, like, hearings uh, that they've been airing on television? Have you seen any of this? Uh... I haven't. So they had, like, uh, in the first day of, like, testimony or whatever, it included, like, a, a, the guy who was filming a documentary about, like, the Proud Boys, mm-hmm. you know, the, like, white supremacist, misogynist, you know, um, militia group that you know like whatever uh tried to stage a coup anyway there was like but they showed these this incredible footage where like the documentary like they're in a car with the documentary just being like yeah this is our plan here's what we're doing like whatever and it got me thinking like what is the complicity or what are the responsibilities of a documentarian in the context of filming a subject that is you know um, talking about (laughs) crazy shit or or <laughs> violence or whatever um whether the stakes are the proud boys or yes. like that <laughs> but then i was like yeah like what is their responsibility to get michael to this meeting or like what is you know what is like like when michael you know grills his foot what is their <laughs> don't they have do they have an ethical responsibility to help him or not um but or, or to any- reveal that he and jan kissed for example uh-huh like, why would that be a problem unless they might tell somebody? Yeah. So it did feel, yeah. Okay. So when the camera sees Jan kiss Michael, and then first of all, I love the way Michael immediately looks at the camera and then Jan hadn't known it was there. So she looks then and it's like, oh my God. But you'd think one way to kind of imagine it would be that Jan could go get like demand the footage and take it away and not let them publish it or publishes the work whatever the word is um but she doesn't do that so it feels like part of the documentary is that if you are caught in something embarrassing part of the documentary form is that if you are a person in front of the camera you can't go back and take that away and then there's the the issue of on the other side of the camera and you're right do you just let the experiment of Michael Scott being in New York play out right as it does right yeah it's interesting it'll be really interesting if we find out what this documentary is about yeah. or whatever <laughs> um before we move on from the opening we get there was like a ton of stuff in this opening that I thought was interesting um but you already mentioned it the grade school thing did you do valentines in grade school was it a positive thing did you yeah, what was Valentine's like? You know, I don't have a lot of memories of it, only really early. And I think it was in kindergarten or first grade, maybe yeah. I made shoe boxes. We yeah. painted shoe boxes and we had pink and red paint. And then people would bring little Valentines and you have to, you know, you give a Valentine to everybody. Same. We had and to you do put it the in their little mailbox. And yeah. I, so I do think there's this sweet, kind of goofy version of valentine's day where you know it's just about giving candy and little cards and it's not there really is this version of valentine's day that is not romantic 
at all. That's the Valentine's Day of mm. moms giving Valentine's to their kids and kids giving Valentine's to each other and friends giving Valentine's. So there's hope. For the there is hope. I'm now suddenly thinking of a few episodes back where you talked about the gift economy and gift <laughs> exchange and how it like forms social bonds. Uh -huh. And like, that is kind of what the Valentine, like, it's interesting by insisting that everybody gives everybody else a Valentine's you prevent, you sort of ward off the implicit idea of Valentine's, which is like, this is for your special, you're my Valentine, yeah. you're, will you be mine? Like the kind of ownership or mm -hmm. proprietary logic of love. Um, <laughs> so the grade school version is like socialist in a way, um, <laughs> potentially. <laughs> But we see in this episode the the alternative, which is the Bob Vance Vance refrigeration going above board. Which... Tyler, <laughs> this is one of my big questions. I'm sorry to cut you off. I just, <laughs> Tyler, what do you think of Bob Vance? Of <laughs> Vance refrigeration? Um, yes. <laughs> uh, I don't know, but it's really fucking funny to me that like, even in the card to his wife, are they married? They're married, right? Yeah engaged um, or dating okay uh, dating at this point. yeah we need to find i need more info on that but anyway uh have they, we have you met bob vance he was at a was he at a party or does he not do we yeah. not meet him until later i'm not sure when he goes around to everybody and he says bob vance vance refrigeration yeah. bob vance, vance refrigeration yes. and says what line of work are you in bob yeah it was at the christmas party uh, right wasn't christmas that it okay. yeah okay so we have met him in person yeah then that line with ryan is really funny but um <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just thought it was interesting, you know, the function of him giving so much is that everybody else feels lesser, yes. right? Like, so there's this kind of a, a escalation effect of yeah. Valentine's. I don't know what, yeah, what did you, oh, oh, also I was curious, a second question for you. In his card to Phyllis, he calls her darling. I was curious what you, how you feel about darling as a, hmm. like, what's, what's the word for that? You know, pet name. Darling. I bet there's like a real thing. It feels, dar darling, doesn't it feel kind of old timey? Yeah. Kind of, uh, kind of classic. Kind of like you would expect Cecil to call people darling rather than babe. <laughs> so yeah, I think it just has an old timey feel, not strong feelings about darling. Other than that, I do have really strong feelings about Bob Vance and I hate Bob Vance. Because of this episode or because of this episode, because of this episode. Okay. This, Wait, why? This is ridiculous what he is doing on for Valentine's Day. Because I'm sorry, is this about Phyllis or is it this some kind of performance for the office mm. as a whole? Mm. It's just so excessive. And mm. if you want to give all of these things to Phyllis, you could give them to her after work you could get right. cheaper at home like having all of them delivered to the office just feels so i i don't know what's what's the word that i'm looking for it feels like a performance it feels yeah. showy it feels just too much i think that is why i don't or you know the kind of cynical queer in me that doesn't love Valentine's Day is because it often is about performing 
um, romantic love in public spaces. So yes. Yes. like this is, I feel similarly about um, like proposals at public events. Yes. Where I'm like, wait, why should I be recruited, <laughs> interpolated into Ooh. your, um, into your public or into your private, you know, kind of intimacy. And like, yeah. I, I recognize that like intimacy is a social relation and blah, 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 blah. But it is, a, it is performative precisely in the sense that like, you can't, there are certain norms, right? And like they, and it enforces it. So like, I always love telling my students how there was a period in my life where I liked watching YouTube videos of, of failed proposals. <laughs> like where people reject you, you know, in at the football game or whatever, you know, and it hurt me a little bit to discover some of those were faked. Um, but it's interesting that anybody would even think to perform the fake version anyway. But yeah, so I'm, I'm with you. I think that there is this kind of unthinking or, you know, kind of um, coercive effect of like, it's sending to her at work yeah, to show everybody, look, how much money we have, right? Because that fucking bear, that's expensive. Up there. And flowers, I gotta tell you, I feel like the flowers, flowers are surprisingly expensive. And right. they might, they might uh, even beat the bear. The bear is just so ridiculous. So one of the Vance Refrigeration guys carries in this bear that is one of those bears that's maybe the size of a twin bed. Like it oh, is. Yeah enormous phyllis at the end of the day carries it out on her back where are you going to put that thing right 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 you have to it kind of reminds me of ryan's question about the metal the yogurt <laughs> the olympic metal you like do i keep this for two weeks or do i just go ahead and throw it away now where is that bear going to end up other than the trash the thing is huge think about how much space in a room that takes up it's oppressively large and just so over dramatic i wrote in my Push notes back on me about this tyler i I'm, i might be coming too hard for for bob vance so please well, i just done another I, I wrote bear as metaphor question mark <laughs> and so i wasn't sure what it was a metaphor for uh i kept being like okay like you know because there's something about the fact that she's the receiver of gifts you know and like then is burdened with carrying them out and yeah uh, yeah and what is the implicit like uh reciprocation right like i give you this what do you give me in return like mm -hmm. roy sort of makes that explicit it was like oh sex like i'm gonna give you sex you know or whatever or like um so i you know I, I don't know there's a there's a undercurrent there maybe i don't know i just kept being like yeah. what does the bear represent so i like your reading that it is like demonstrating the kind of consumerist empty um kind of artificial nature of certain ways of doing valentines and i felt that the episode tried to make that point through dwight going to pam and saying okay what do i do to get angela a gift um i was really curious your take on why he goes to pam but mm -hmm. um in going to her that helps us narratively learn what it is that she would like from Roy and she says something, where did I write it down? Like, I, you know, something along the lines of you want to see um, that somebody do something so that the person knows you care about her, right? Mm -hmm. And like, so it's not that the bear or the flowers couldn't be that, but 
they're also like cliches that, you know, I'm, that always like yeah. struck me. Yeah. It's like you walk through Walgreens and here's like a stack of heart-shaped chocolates, all of them the same. And it's like, you know, there is nothing singular or specific about it. And so the fact that you bought it and handed it to somebody, that's enough, you know, and uh, to be sure, many people apparently can't even do that. So, you know, whatever, <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, I don't know. Yeah. So it was interesting to hear like Pam's version. It has to be thoughtful. And so in some ways, I wonder if the key that he gives Angela and the bobblehead that she gives him are representations of what the show is sort of saying is like, these are great gifts. Oh, yeah, you're right. Dwight, so Dwight beats Bob Vance at Valentine's Day in the show, doesn't he? Yeah. I, I think, think Bob so. Vance thinks that he wins Valentine's Day for sure. And I think there's a certain kind of cultural logic in which he does win mm-hmm. because, and there is this thing of, I don't know, winning or like following the practice. Like he's yeah. able to follow the practice so well and to this extreme. Uh, but you're right, Dwight and Angela do the strongest gifts. I love when Dwight receives his, his gift from Angela. So he comes up to his desk and there's a box on it. And at first he's very suspicious and asks Jim where it came from. But he opens it up and he pulls out this bobblehead of himself. So a custom made bobblehead. And he says, it's me. I'm the bobblehead. Yes. And he just looks so happy and he's so excited about that. And I just thought that was such an enjoyable delight moment. Has it been like firmly established that he loves bobbleheads or are they on his desk? And I just haven't been paying attention. They're on his desk at some point earlier, but I don't think they've made a big thing about it, but they're there. I think he's got a couple of baseball players. Okay. Yeah. You have to kind of look out for him. It is amazing. Well, first, I love that you read the line because his reading of that line is so great. His enthusiasm, like I think Dwight's yeah. performance in this episode is really funny. Yeah. Um, because he doesn't actually have a lot to do. It's much more interior, you know. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he's not being insane. Um, but yeah, his line readings are really great. And then the design of that bobblehead with the pursed lips and the, um, the little glasses. Uh-huh. And the swoop, the swoop of hair. It's just perfect. Where did Angela get it? Did she make it? She did not make it by hand. I think you custom order that. I actually this would have been a good, a good research for us to see. You know, can you get bobble? You must get bobbleheads custom made. You're right. Good attention to detail there. One of my other favorite Dwight things is when he's helping Michael get ready to go in his office at the beginning yes. and he hands him his passport. Yes, I wrote that too. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what? Yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> I just think it shows what a big, there's something so sweet about it in yeah. feeling that it's that big of a deal to go to New York because Michael on the one hand wants to make it, like it's this really pretty normal thing for him. Like he wants to go go early so he can check out all his favorite haunts and yet at the same time, he treats it like international travel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in that scene too, um, there is an interesting, it's, I'm always fascinated by how similar Dwight and Michael are. And yet the mm-hmm. moments when Michael sort of like distances himself from yeah. Dwight. So when Dwight says, yeah. 
well, because you and Jan screwed. And Michael, <laughs> what is wrong with you? Um, it's so strange because you would think like there's an opportunity for Michael to be like, yeah, we did, or to double down and be equally as awkward or something, you know, but it's, it's just interesting to me when he doesn't want to be like Dwight, but he yeah. is. I mean, that is a thing that Michael would say in a, in a you know, um, <laughs> but so he goes to the city. I wrote down just a few of these, but New York, the city of love, uh, the city so nice. They named it twice. <laughs> uh, the other name is Manhattan. Yes. Um, <laughs> Times Square, uh, which is named for the good times. Um, <laughs> he says he owns that city. Uh, I'm trying to think if I had any others. Um, oh, that uh, the Statue of Liberty is too touristy. <laughs> um, so he likes to go to Times Square for the Bubba Gump shrimp and whatnot. Uh -huh. uh, the subway, um, where there's somebody pooping in a box, I think he said. Yes. Rockefeller Center, where maybe the Rangers practice sometimes. Um, we have, he thinks he sees Tina Fey, but misses seeing Conan. Um, <laughs> he says, uh, oh, um, that New York is like Scranton on acid, no speed, no steroids, <laughs> but it's a dream of his to live there, which I found very interesting. And then of course my favorite fucking joke, uh, of all is the Spar Sabaro. How do you say it? Sabaro. Yes. To get a New York slice. Um, yes. So I was kind of curious what you thought of Michael in New York. And also whether, I don't know about you, but when we were living in New Jersey, I went to New York City a bunch. And um, so there was just an interesting, something interesting about, because I always felt like, oh, a kind of weird tourist in New York City, uh, uh -huh. even though we were only 40 minutes away on the train or something. And yeah. I don't know. I don't have, I have complicated feelings about New York City, so I'm curious. But yeah, I could definitely agree, recognize Michael's spots, and from being in a similar position where, you know, like, you're kind of close, but you're still a tourist there, for the most part. So, when he, it's, the Sabaro thing is when he, and that is what, that's one of those names that every time I say it, I don't know exactly how to pronounce it, so let's just That'll be in revisions. Acknowledge that. But when he says, this is when he's first arrived. So I think it's still the morning. And he says, my favorite New York pizza joint. I'm going to get me a New York slice. Something <laughs> like that. And then it shows that it's Sabaro. And it just, to me, that's like mall pizza. Yeah. You know, like it's in every shopping mall before malls maybe died. They had... That and I liked it. Like I remember when I, you know, go shopping in junior high and whatnot. Like I, I like to get, I like to get myself a New York slice there. <laughs> but you know, just there's this kind of, I want to call it innocence, but it's not exactly innocence. But Michael thinks he knows so much about New York, and he's just constantly revealing himself to be kind of an idiot about it and to totally not be an insider where he thinks the most corporate standardized places that there are throughout the United States everywhere yes. are these great New York things. So when he talks about Times Square and he says, great places to eat, we have bubblegum shrimp, red lobster down there. You know, this is the heart of civilization right here. That red lobster for him is the heart of civilization i love it and i think there is this 
kind of, uh, I don't know, I'm struggling with words today, I think. But the sort of attitude that you're supposed to have that I think is kind of a classist attitude about chain places. This is like Chili's. Yes. yes. Right? Like those places are supposed to be really lame. Yeah. And you're supposed to know like, if you're cool and you're kind of with it, you're supposed to know they're really lame. Yes. But Michael, the fact that Michael does not know that, that that's the thing he's supposed to know and the thing he's supposed to feel. And if he is to be a cool New York guy, he's going to know about some little hidden place that's tucked away yes. that nobody knows about. Yes. I think that that's what makes this joke so smart and interesting mm -hmm. to me. And I wonder if it's also what makes it play for a mass audience because it makes fun of both the um the the kind of i don't know you know uncultured uh quote unquote uncultured you know kind of uh, middle american who would go to times square and you know do do the mall stuff right mm -hmm. but on the other hand it is also he is kind of doing a satire of the knowing new york insider who yes. Uh, it's like, oh, you know, let me take you to the, this is the best pizza in New York. And it's like, oh my gosh, okay, it's brilliant. I know that this is yeah. going to be a controversial statement, but like having now lived in upstate New York for eight years and um, there's no fucking good pizza here. You know, whenever I'm in New York City now, but also, you know, Philadelphia and New Jersey and whatnot, it's all good pizza. Like it's all good compared to, you know, so it's like, I was actually like, fuck, I'd kill for some Sparrow pizza right now. Like just compare, you know, everything up here is like French bread type pizza. It's weird. It, oh, well, yes. Um, it's not like the, the Chicago pizza that you, the deep dish that you took me to. It's just, it's just not good. And um, so anyway, you know, but it made me think about all the time, you know, I've had a lot of friends who love to be the elite cultured New York people. It's like, yeah. oh, you know, it has to be the most hidden hole in the wall, blah, blah, thing. And it's like, yeah, it's, I'm sure it's great or whatever, but like, it's also a very performative insider elitist thing that relies yeah. on, like, oh, all those mouth breathers out there can't <laughs> appreciate this slice of bread with cheese on it. You know, it's like, yeah. It's it's meant to be uh, common peasant food, <laughs> food for the masses, you know. And so anyway, I, I love that it's like it makes fun of both of those in a way. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, that's such a great point. I love that. I think that might be part of my ambivalence about New York City, too. It's like everybody I know who lived there um, could be sometimes like a little insufferable <laughs> about just how amazing it is. And it's like, yeah, all right. Like, Mm -hmm. okay you know um yeah yeah <laughs> i'm gonna probably cut that from the puck the <laughs> but the truth is the really cool really interesting places michael talks about are really cool and really interesting <laughs> <laughs> we are totally like you know <laughs> mass culture people well we're doing a podcast about the office so anyway yeah i mean if people like i, I had recently somebody asked me because I've been nearby at Rutgers and I actually, I stayed in New York in Chelsea over one summer, over like eight weeks when I was teaching a summer class. Yeah. And still though, I'm like, go to Central Park. It's really great. Yeah. It's really great. Yes, it <laughs> um, yeah. I think, I think I did the Rockefeller because in the background of when he's in front of Rockefeller center, there's like the, add on the building for the like go up to the top there's like the 360 
I don't know. I think I did that or some version of that or whatever. And it was awesome. I was like, this is really cool. What a pretty view. I don't know. Sometimes whatever. the tourist things are tourist things for a reason because they're <laughs> pretty great. Uh, I don't know. about. I'm not crazy about the bubblegum shrimp though. I don't know if I want to eat that. I have never been to bubblegum shrimp. Me neither. I, is that really a thing? Is that still a it thing? It is. I've seen them somewhere. Okay. Um, but yeah, so the, one of the other things in there that as you know from the past this is sort of like his language or like pronunciation mistakes that I love is the mistakes he makes so when he says that uh New York City Times Square named for all the good times you have when you're in it I looked it up Times Square was originally known as Long Acre Square after London's carriage district it served as an early site for William H Vanderbilt's American Horse Exchange if you look back at some of the early pictures, it's really, really interesting, but it became Times Square when the New York Times built their building, their kind of tower there. And so that is where it got the name from New York Times, which grew out, outgrew their building and ended up moving to another location. But that's where it's from. I also love when he's talking about the world famous Rockefeller Center, founded, of course, by Theodore Rockefeller. Yeah. John D. Rockefeller, yeah, right, built right, right. in the 1930s, but it's just one of those <laughs> Michael errors that I love, where he just speaks though with confidence, and yeah, I just find it very, very charming. I did have to Google. I was like, that can't be right, right? Yeah, like, no. I, to, I was like, no, that's not right. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like Theodore Roosevelt. Is it just that Theodore seems like it was one of the names of that era, but? It was funny. And so I love, you already, you mentioned this, but he is talking to the camera, talking about the skating rink at Rockefeller Center. And then he says, that's Tina Fey from Saturday Night Live. Hello, hello, hi. And he walks over to try and catch her. And that's when he misses Conan O'Brien walking by. Yeah. yeah. Who is so tall and yeah. so distinctive looking. You yeah. know, he really stands out in a crowd. And- <laughs> So I just thought that was so funny. They also never mention, they never say who it is. Yeah, that's true. So Michael just responds. It's like the camera guy tells him Conan O'Brien walked by and Michael says, are you serious? He was here when, when I was talking to the fake Tina Fey, come on. <laughs> never actually, they never mention him or name him. And he's just this person walking by. So I thought that that was an interesting way of handling it too. And I also love Conan, so this. Me too. <laughs> well, and it, 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 he he did kind of represent a kind of a like a sarcastic Gen X um, kind of a alternative comedy a little bit, right? Like, uh, I mean, like he's you know still pop culture, but like he's he wasn't Jay Leno, and he's not yeah David Letterman or something like that. So. Um, so anyway, it's interesting that he's the celebrity. He is he and yeah. Tina are the ones that they picked. It not, is. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure I wonder how he fits into Michael's pantheon of funny people. You know, like Bob Hope and right, right. Whoever Chris Rock, I guess, is the other comedian. Yeah, yeah. He, he references a lot. I didn't actually watch Conan's show very much, but I listened to his podcast, and he is just so goofy and bizarre and yeah. funny and the podcast format lets him just go crazy 
um, because he does not have to maintain form. He's, I think he's really, really funny and really strange and very uh, delightful. I find him delightful. But yeah, he's an interesting, interesting connection to Michael Scott here. So then Michael goes to the um, business meeting, which is for, uh, you know, them to present their like their earnings or whatever, right? Like how, Mm -hmm. how are the branches doing? I do think, you know, just to, to be the uh, irritating Marxist for a second, it is interesting how Craig the idiot, as Michael calls him, is, you know, he's sort of villainized, you know, rightly as a sexist. Um, but at the same time, he is, he is the person who's like, she told me to fire people and I didn't, I just didn't do that, you know? So it's like, the bad thing about him is that he didn't, um, you know, succumb to the austerity measures of the corporate overlords. Like, yeah, he's also a sexist dick and that's what you sort of focus on. Um, but it is kind of, and then like, oh no, I didn't make a presentation for you to decide whether or not you should close our branch, you know, like, I don't, it's just interesting, you know, to me mm. like how, but of course I hated him, you know, I'm supposed to, but yeah. I just was thinking a little bit about how, you know, cause we've had this long standing question of like, to what extent does the show kind of make you endear you to corporate America or, you know, make you feel the alienation of it or, you know, if we, how, where does it land or how does it grapple with the contradiction? And um, yeah, it's interesting. Cause like, David Wallace is not a villain in this scene, you know, it's yeah that guy. Um, but uh, hmm. anyway, I, yeah, I don't know. I was curious if you had thoughts on that's that. A but great, that's a great point. I did not think about that at all because he is so awful. He's I mean, right. He's, he's so, so off-putting that it doesn't like, it didn't leave me thinking about the le- actual legitimacy of his <laughs> positions but partly because partly because I think his motivation like it didn't come none of it came out of yeah caring about workers or you know not wanting to fire people it was all basically just that he thinks Jan is a bitch like I don't get the sense that there's any kind of ethics behind it or or something like that so I think it's both sexism and laziness in terms of making a presentation and just an unwillingness. So he he seems to just be really, really resistant to anything that comes from her. So none of it seems to be about what it is. And I was thinking back to some of the times when we've talked about the kind of feminization of power when Jan has been the top of the company, you know, like the highest person that we've been interacting with up to this point. So now we see her in a place where she's at the middle, you know, so she, like she's yes. now nervous to report, yes. to report to somebody who's above her. Yes. And we see her also receiving this awful pushback yes. from men below her. And so it made me, made me rethink a little bit her seminar because the, the week before, or the, sorry, the episode before was boys and girls. So she was talking about so you know, being a woman in the workplace. And now we see her as a woman in the workplace in a really different way than we've seen yeah. her before. That's such a great point, Megan. You are so good <laughs> at like seeing the patterns between the episodes. And I really want to get better at, at like doing that because 
and I don't know if I would watch them all in a row, like if it would sink it, or if I if I really listened to our podcast, <laughs> you know, like right before we did the next one, and it would be. But that's so beautiful because, yeah, like it really does reframe her orientation to this, and like this dude is. He says like she's not my boss, yeah. but she is. And he's yeah. also set up. I mean, definitely like the laziness. Like I love his um, the way they did his hair and just his whole vibe uh-huh. is like. But also, Michael says, you've been kicked out of every strip club in Albany. Is that true? And he's like, guilty. Yeah. And it's like, not only is this guy going to strip clubs, like he's getting kicked out of them, which means he is a fucking creep, predator, you know, whatever. Like, yeah. he's definitely a misogynist. And uh, that's a good point. But so. interesting there, we see again, Michael kind of like Hooters, Michael bonding and establishing rapport with a man by talking about strip clubs. Yeah. That's kind of a first thing. Similar to his response, by the way, with um, Daryl and um, Roy and whatever. He's like, they they start like criticizing Jan, right? At the end of the last episode. And he's like, watch it. You know, she's my girlfriend or something like that. Or yes. um, And he does that again. And it's like, he can't just like, uh, be in solidarity with women or something like that. It's like, no, 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 you have to own them in some way. Yeah, or they have to be like a special woman to deserve protection or something. Like, it's like all those men who are like, oh, I care about women because I have a daughter and a mother and a, and a wife or something. And it's like, mm, you could just maybe not mention that. And like, you could, you know, mm-hmm. see women as people and human beings deserving of rights and respect. <laughs> Just as such, like not because they are special to you in some way. You know what I mean? I don't know. So yeah. it's interesting that Michael, like he starts to have solidarity and then it's like, well, it's because she's my girlfriend. It's like, fuck, dude. Uh, you're so right, close. He could, right, like he could have said, or he he could have defended her just as being a coworker and their boss or something like that, rather than it being on the terms of being his girlfriend and he interestingly so kelly and ryan have been using the phrase hooked up and he also uses the word hooked yeah, up i was curious if what they what yeah and yeah i wonder if that's even though strategically different with this group of men to be like in order to get craig to shut it down to say i hooked up with her as opposed to come on man you should respect women yeah yeah. you know what I'm saying because it would be so lame to just kind of (laughs) argue that he should respect her as a person as a woman as a boss but instead it's like this kind of because part of it it's this kind of exciting secret gossipy information yeah 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 that's interesting I yeah, I'm remembering the guy before. What's the other guy's name? Um, Josh. He's he Josh. says like, well, she's our, she is our boss. Our boss. He says. Yeah. But that and he's like, I don't work for that bitch. Like, and yes. you know, they really. Yes. But it's interesting in there too. Like, you can say bitch, I guess, on mainstream television, like on network television. Um, yeah. But I kept thinking about because I was like, what does hooked up mean? For Kelly and Ryan, does it mean that they had sex? Does it mean that they made out? Like, you know, what what exactly does that mean? Um, but also, as you were talking, I was like, oh right, like you can't say we fucked on 
NBC, you know, you could probably have other, you know, you have other ways to say it, but um, just made me wonder if that's a euphemism that's like, is okay yeah. for network TV. I don't know, but huh. they do go to, because then doesn't Josh say you slept with Jan? Oh, that's right. You're doesn't right. he take, I think, so I think that at least they read hooked up in that way. In the script, you know, Josh says you hooked up with Jan. Um, oh, it's Josh who says you hooked up with Jan. Yeah. Okay. What is my, what is it that Michael says? What phrase does he use? Uh, she's my girlfriend was or not my girlfriend. She's, we hooked up. Uh, says, you hooked you up with Jan. But I don't know if, um, if it changes later. Uh, but Michael gives his presentation and it's so endearing because, <laughs> uh, well, it, it's just interesting. I just kept thinking about it. It's like, it's, you know, it would be, it would play really different, like plot wise, if he had his movie and then didn't have the data. The fact that he has the data really like redeems the. Yes. I yeah. love this. But I love it too. And like, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it, again, it's like one of those double things. Cause it's like clearly parroting the, um, you know, the genre of like you've, you're forced to smile you know, for in the work picture and in the work video and all of this or whatever. But on the other hand, it's also really underscoring like, you know, the corporate bosses don't give a shit about the workers and who they are and what their feelings are or whatever, you know, and, um, but Michael does and that there's something sweet. Yeah. He's, he's like, we're in the people business, <laughs> not the paper business. And, but also what is a business is like, every undergraduate paper being like Merriam-Webster's divines <laughs> as the economic, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, yes. Yeah. What, what was your take on the on a Michael Scott joint? First of all, the fact that he calls it a Michael Scott joint, which I, I looked it up and because this thing is that it's just a Spike Lee thing though. Like yeah. it's not, it's not, it doesn't apply to other directors. It's just a Spike Lee thing for some reason. So Hilarious that Michael takes that up, um, that he takes himself so seriously about it too. I mean, kind of like his tour of New York where he's revealing himself to be kind of an idiot without knowing it. He takes himself so seriously about this video and he, as he's watching it, he's mouthing the words of the script with his eyes a little bit squinted in this way that's like, yeah, this is really good. Yeah. And one of the two of the sentences actually that stood out to me were when he's talking about Stanley. So he says, and first of all, the camera, when it is on Stanley, is so close up that is only part of his face. And he is so annoyed with Michael at that point. Yeah. But the narration is this is Stanley Hudson, one of our talented salesmen. An African-American father of two, Stanley's dedication is no doubt one of the hallmarks of the foundation of the business we're hoping to build our bases on. <laughs> I can't even read that sentence without laughing because it's such a horrible sentence. Yeah. Like, what does that say? Nothing. Okay, his dedication is no doubt one of the hallmarks of the foundation of the business we're hoping to build our bases on. Like, I have no idea what that's even trying to say. It's just way too many words packed into that space. 
it also felt like he he kind of he gives the most space in the video i think to stanley i think he talks about him more than anyone else yeah yeah and it sort of felt like the use of black students on college brochures yes, yes you know definitely. where it's like this representation of the diversity of the office or of the college campus or whatever that's out of proportion with the reality so that stood out to me as well as the dry tea bag at the end oh my god so funny so at the end he's i i I can't even remember what he's saying at this point but it's like he's closing it out at the conclusion and he's standing in the kitchen or break room with a cup of tea and he's dipping his tea bag what is that being folksy or something you know comfortable (laughs) making it homey yeah it's like he's dipping a tea bag into his cup but it keeps coming out dry (laughs) so he's not drinking tea and oh i don't know just so many it's really funny things going on in this video there's also him saying uh and finally pam beasley look at her look how cute not bad at all (laughs) yes you're right pam and stanley are really the two standouts and it's like yeah now you've got me on the mind of my you know kind of um you know, uh, or the last episode, the boys and girls and the question of um, the, uh, yeah, sexual harassment in the workplace, because that does become the next thing. Like when Craig's like, oh, I should have slept with Jan or whatever. Um, I think you're right. He does say that, right? Uh, you're right. Yeah. That's when we get the slept. Yes. I should have slept with you too. Damn. That is, damn. Um, anyway, so but I did keep thinking, you know, in terms of the what David Wallace says is like, you know, I don't even need you to explain to you that even a joke about sexual relations with your boss. And I was like, all of them should be fired. But like, Michael, <laughs> Michael would also be fired just for the like, objectification of Pam in the video. But <laughs> the way that he says it as if it's like a compliment is what makes it so fucking funny that he's like, you know, she's not too bad. It's like his, you know, the best he can muster. <laughs> and uh, anyway. Um, this is know. a, this know. is a very good point. The video actually, yeah, is as funny as it is, is also revealing of many of the problem dynamics in the office yeah, right. around race, around gender, and the way he talks about the size of Phyllis's pants. Like there's yeah, right, a right. Lot of, there's it, it is itself a rich text. And yet it is endearing because it's like it he is. cares about the people. Like <laughs> there is so I did think too, or I was like, he opens up saying life moves a little slower in Scranton. I was like, that is a bad start if you're trying to be like, <laughs> we're doing great. We make money like you know, rather than being like we <laughs> slow and we, you know, uh, anyway. Um, yeah. Hmm. So then uh, we have the interaction with Jan. And I have to say, I really love, I mean, I think I just love the actress who plays Jan. I love her performance. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she's brilliant, but I, she's really interesting when he's like, we're all going to get fired. He says, no, you're not. He says, um, you know, we didn't even sleep together, she says. And he says, technically, we fell asleep in the same bed. And the way she says, oh, God, Michael, it was months ago. It was once. It's over. Do you understand? Like, genuinely, like, because in that moment, it's like almost as if Michael is like incapable of 
even being in touch with reality. Like, oh, it's an, mm-hmm. unlike Craig, who is like a misogynist, she approaches Michael like he is, you know, um, just really beyond understanding. I don't know. It's really. Yeah. An she interesting... sounds in that delivery too, just so worn out by him. It kind of at the end of her rope, like she's tried things and cannot figure out what the thing to do would be but i have to say michael really shines i know in this moment so he i think this comes right after he mentions well first of all this is a side thing but then we can talk about what he does how he handles it i think that he mentions oh i can talk to david and jan says surely you cannot be serious and michael says i am serious and don't call me shirley and the joy in his eyes then when he looks at the camera because he got to do that don't call me Shirley joke. Fantastic. But he goes, so I just felt like Michael handled this so well. So they're talking in David's office and Michael says, here's the deal. It's my fault. This is, this is totally on me. Before you guys came in, I was talking to the guys, we were all chatting And I made a joke, a really dumb joke. And Craig, the idiot, took it seriously. David asks, you made a joke? Michael, I did. It was stupid. And Craig, you saw him. He's not the sharpest tool in the shed, although he is a tool. And David says, well, I don't need to explain to you that even a joke about sexual relations with your boss, Michael, I know it was borderline at best. And Jan is a fantastic executive and has all the integrity in the world. And um, I'm really sorry. It will never happen again. So I've already showed my cards. I think Michael handled this so well. But what was your take, Tyler? I think it's it's really um, it's really interesting to reread it because in the scene before, you know, um, Jan basically says we're going to get fired, and I think that she thinks if you go and talk to David Wass, it will only make it worse, and it will certainly get you fired. Mm-hmm. And so. I don't think that I realized that like Michael is risking himself here Hmm. actually, you know, and he is taking full responsibility. Yeah. uh, Which is a thing we don't often see him do. And um, at the very same time, he's very clever, whether he's doing it on purpose or not, but the way that he calls, he says, Craig, the idiot, and that he's not the sharpest tool in the shed. And then he is a tool is like three digs at Craig that like blame Craig. Um, you know, so it like he takes responsibility but deflects it. Yeah. In a very clever way. And then I really like the writing and the phrasing. It was borderline at best. Mm-hmm. And then deflects it to Jan as a fantastic executive and all the integrity in the world. I'm sorry. You know, there, and I don't know. It's like a, it's, it's a very, because I kept thinking, okay, why does she kiss him? You know, what is her, what's happening here? And like the best that I can come up with is that. Um, either this is a moment where she seems to think he is in touch with reality mm-hmm. and is a genuine, um, you know, has the capacity for kind of genuine um, accountability or something like that, or that he see, you know, that he praises her and he's sort of like, you know, um, like, uh, I don't know, mm-hmm. calls her, says she's great in boss and has integrity, you know, and so she feels appreciated or something like that. I don't know. But yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think it's it's a really interesting episode. 
yeah uh, for michael scott because he comes yeah. off looking really good i think he does he does yeah he's this still, i'd say still an idiot <laughs> i'd say this is hot i think this makes complete sense that jan, <laughs> that jan likes this i feel like she probably sees in him in this scene what she liked about him to begin with like what made her kiss him the first time and that was after Chili's, and that was after he had made this deal um with christian was his name right from Lackawanna County Mm -hmm. and he had really sold well. So there are these moments when Michael's skill comes out and his maturity and his ability to, to interact with people well, because you're right. Brilliant. The thing, the way that he talks about Craig. And one thing I noticed is the way that David kind of laughs a little bit. He he's winning him over and he's kind of building rapport with him by talking about Craig mm-hmm. in a way that kind of puts himself and Jan actually as the ones who are professionals. And so I think, uh, I think there's, there's a lot that's very attractive about this. One side note, yeah. while we're in David's office, one thing I noticed, so in Michael's office, he has a printout. It looks just like something he shot off a color printer of an American flag with kind of an eagle behind it on his wall. Mm. Like this really kind of trashy looking patriotic picture. And David Wallace has behind him on his big windows that are overlooking New York City and a bronze statue of an eagle. Oh, really? And so I just thought there was this really interesting echo of oh. the eagles and the kind of different status levels of these eagles that they have status so class but also classiness because yeah. michael seems so trashy yeah yeah um that's don't have much more to say about that but i just thought it was an interesting kind of mirroring between them i don't have much to say about the kiss i feel like we talked about the kind of cinematography mm-hmm. of it um but i i'm really excited to see where that goes um but I did want to say that this is sort of my last thing, but the Roy and Pam of it all, very interesting. Um, because Pam says at the beginning, I, I don't know, I don't mean to be uh, you know, critical of Pam because obviously I love her, but I, she says, I told Roy not to get me anything big because we're saving for the wedding. And then we see her doing the planning for the like seating arrangements and stuff. Oh, yeah. So I just was like, what is it that she, I would have, I want to see that conversation. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, like, I know we're meant to take Roy as a huge douchebag and he is. Um, and I know that, you know, we're meant to take Jim as the, you know, the thoughtful person, whatever. But um, I don't know. I just, I just was kind of curious, like what, yeah, what is it that she would like? But we also know, we know what she would like. She wants a card with Dwight's face that's horrifying and funny. So Roy didn't have to do anything major. He didn't have to buy a big bear. He didn't have to buy flowers. All he had to do was something thoughtful. But since he does not like listening to her talk about her feelings or thoughts, as we established from the last episode, then um, he can't do that. And so he shows up completely oblivious and then says, uh, um, or she says, I said, I know that we said no big gifts, but I was kind of hoping you'd get me something for Valentine's Day. And I have to say, I am completely with her. I'd be like so disappointed if we had mm-hmm. talked about it and then nothing, mm-hmm. you know. 
Um, and then he says, let's get you home. You're going to have the best sex of your life. And I was curious what that would look like. Like, what would be, like, <laughs> in Roy's mind, the best sex? Like, what does he think? What? How is he going to spice it up or change it? Yeah. You know, I don't want to make a sense. He's been withholding that he's going to bring out. Yeah. You know, like, different <laughs> different music, you know, different positions. Like... What, what a, I don't you know I don't mean to make assumptions about what kind of sex they have but my impression is very vanilla you know so how is he I don't know so um but it was but it's also interesting that that signifies as gross it's like it really reinforces the idea that romance you know Valentine's is about romance and thoughtfulness not about carnal mm. lust <laughs> <laughs> and uh anyway of guy, you know, um, I'm well, just you, being a contrarian. Of course, Roy's a douchebag. You know. You've given us a lot of material to think about. Have I? I don't know. I'm going to revise and regret. <laughs> I don't know. I never, I never thought about it that way. But I think it is a great question. <laughs> it's not a good episode when you say things like, "Obviously, Craig's a sexist," but, <laughs> <laughs> or obviously, Roy, you know. That's not good. That's what I do, Tyler, is think deeply about this show. And so sometimes it involves those kinds of questions. And you're right, is is Dwight, or I mean Dwight, is is Roy worse than Bob Vance? Good question. I don't know. The show really wants the authentic uh love of Jim and Pam to win the day. And uh no, you know, but I'm rooting for Kelly and Ryan. That's the couple I'm rooting for. <laughs> I actually really like, by the way, how Kelly and Ryan's relate Kelly's relationship paralleled Jim, because yeah. I don't think I think it's really interesting to think about why Jim finds Kelly annoying and why the show finds her annoying. Mm-hmm. But I think it might be because she is expressing precisely what the show and Jim want. You know, mm-hmm. like this kind of sentimental romance, um, you know, and so he's like, yeah, it would be nice, but he's not into you. So move on, get over it, have some fun. But he can't do that. He, she is expressing exactly what he feels. And so he's annoyed by her. Like, I don't know. Hmm. Um, yeah, you're right. Because he gets most exasperated, too, when it hits the point where she just won't listen. It. It feels in some ways, yeah, like he does the same thing where he also is hanging on and hasn't given up on his love for Pam. But at the same time, he kind of accepts it in a different way than Kelly does because, you know, Kelly just keeps talking about it. So when he says to Kelly something like, yeah, you just you just got to give up and you got to move on. He's not actually moving on, but he is not talking about it incessantly. Like He's kind of accepting it in that way so I wonder if there's something about Kelly's insistence on it you know that particularly then kind of grinds at him one more small thing and then this is this is all I've got I, I forgot to start our timer so I have no idea where we're at on um, time-wise but last little thing was when Kelly is talking to Jim and he cannot break the conversation and she does not take any cues about when the conversation should break off and so he just starts backing up and then eventually he's backing out of the door and his head is still kind of poking out. Yeah. But he still doesn't cut off. I just, I just love that. 
Shall we to move? see some strategies for getting out of a conversation. Yeah. Oh my God. I was definitely like relating to, yeah. to that. Um, let's do our Dundies, shall we? Do our Dundies. I've got two, um, if I'm permitted. Um, the first one may be an obvious one, but okay. uh, I never, I need to figure out what the Dundee is for ahead of time. That's often why I'm like, oh, Megan, do you want to go first? Because I'm sitting there thinking what to call it. Yeah. Um, you, don't, you don't have to name it if you don't want to. But yeah, I, I often do that too. I don't always come in with that plan. But I think I would give it, uh, well, anyway, Michael Scott is getting my Dundee and he's getting it for the, um, the uh, I don't know, uh, solidarity award i don't know i just think it's really cool it's nice the way that he uh he takes accountability and you know praises jan to the new ceo or whatever i think that that's great and then also i his kind of heartwarming love of the people in the office um so maybe the uh you know the people business award um <laughs> yeah that's good. but my second dundee um for uh is the loud and proud award goes to gill uh for sending oscar uh an, a, a, a valentine's gift at work because you know that's pretty cool i mean on the other hand now that i say that out loud if oscar doesn't want to be out and gill is forcing that issue that could be bad but either way at least for the effort to push back on the kind of um, heteronormative erasure of queerness in the workplace on Valentine's Day. Cheers to yeah. you, Gil. Cheers to Gil. That is such a good one. I also have to say the office delivery of flowers to Oscar from Gil is so different than the delivery of flowers to Phyllis. Definitely. Because it, yeah, because it kind of breaks the code and the standard expectation. Even in the plant itself, I believe it's in a basket. So I think it's not cut flowers. Like I think it's a plant that will continue to live and it isn't roses and it isn't tulips. It just, it felt less, kind of less standard than um, the flowers for Phyllis anyway. So I, I felt like that was also a nice choice. Yeah, good close reading on the details, man. You were so, <laughs> so brilliant. All right, yeah. who's your Dundee? Close reading, this is my job. Um, I'm giving, <laughs> you're not gonna be surprised in the least, the Integrity Award goes to Michael Scott. Yes for just taking responsibility, doing it in such a compelling way. I thought that was that was excellent. This was a great Michael Scott. I also will just give honorable mention to David Wallace. I don't know why I find the guy so likable, but I just do. And uh, I don't know if it's, there are some things about him later that I think affect mm. how I feel about him now. Actually, how did you have any feeling about David Wallace? Like with less attachment and less experience with him later in the show, does he just seem because I could see him just being kind of blank? Like he he doesn't do very much, he doesn't say things that are have a lot of personality or anything. I think well, first I think he's cute and that kind of like you know does a lot for me, but I think I think part of what makes him cute is there is this kind of like calm, blank sweetness or something. And yeah, so, yeah. Um, but the way that that actually gets dramatized is when Michael gives his presentation, and David actually says that was really nice. Um, but do you have the 
numbers, you know? Yes. So he doesn't yes. say it in like a shamey way. He doesn't, you know, he's genuinely, or it, even if he's faking it, he's not like rude. Um, yes, you're and right. So that moment really endeared me to him, as did his sort of being like, hey, sexual harassment is not okay, even though clearly he missed it in the video, but whatever. Uh, um, but he takes seriously the concern that Jan is being um, harassed. Yes. And I think that that also shows, you know, um, him in a positive light or whatever. Um, We have great evidence then for liking. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Okay, good. Um, Even if, but we should say that might be bad. Maybe we shouldn't be idealizing the CEO of the company. (laughs) CFO, Tyler. Oh, you're right. Oh, actually, then it's fine. Financial officer, it's fine. It's okay, it's okay. (laughs) Okay. All well, right. Coming up next time, we will have season two, episode 17, Dwight's speech. I remember this episode. I think about this episode all the time. I'm you really, seriously? Yes. I'm really excited to talk about this episode. I oh great. I don't really remember the details of it, but I just remember the moment of Dwight's speech <laughs> very well. And I think uh, and I think about it a lot. So I'm excited to discuss that. <laughs> I love it that you think about this speech a lot. I do. Okay, great. Well, looking forward to it. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Bye.